So we've just read Psalm 42 and 43, and the goal is to, uh, in one go, get through uh, both of those psalms. Um, You might have noticed the refrain in verse 5. That is uh, a linking refrain, and so you can kind of think of this psalm uh, kind of like a song, where it has a verse, a chorus, a verse, a chorus, a verse, and then it closes with the chorus. Uh, That same refrain, which you'll see in verse 5, and verse 11 of 42, and then in verse 5 of Psalm 43. Uh, And I'll read it again. It says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The title of the sermon today is Steadfast Endurance. Uh, The title of Psalm 42 in my Bible says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And you'll notice that there is a thread between the endurance that a Christian has, the ability to go day by day by day, walking faithfully with the Lord, and their Christian maturity. The ability of a Christian to walk in step with God despite what the world has to throw at them, what sins they struggle with, all of those factors, their ability to walk with the Lord in a steadfast way for a lifetime is the mark of Christian maturity. And you'll notice as we move through this psalm that David, or whoever the psalmist is, is a mature believer. In this walk of faith, it is really easy, really easy to worship God in the good times. It does not take much when the paychecks are flowing in and when you know what the next four years has for you and your relationships are going great and there's no problems on the horizon. It is not a problem at all to worship God. Anybody can do it and even pagans can get away with worshiping God. When people get drafted into the NFL or to the MLB, the first thing when they'll give their speeches is, you know, I I just want to give thanks to God for this thing, this opportunity. And it's always in the good moments that we are perceived as praising God. But the mark of a mature Christian is praising God, not in the good moments, but with a steadfast and plodding endurance as they walk through life. You might even think it's spiritual for someone to be less conflicted in these down moments, in these moments where they're uh, afflicted and they feel persecuted and they feel internal turmoil. It's not more spiritual to not exist in reality. A Christian lives in the real world with a reality that is uh, broken by sin and broken by human relationships and conflicts and our own wickedness and our pollution that we suffer from. So a Christian is not more spiritual if they have no conflict during turmoil. They're spiritual if they embrace the conflict, embrace the turmoil, and still hold fast to God. And that's what we're going to see in this psalm. This psalm proposes a different world reality than what most of us might have grown up believing about the Christian life. To be a Christian is not to be blessed and highly favored every single day as you walk through this life. It's not when your alarm clock goes off in the morning, you levitate off your bed, and you're just sunshine and happiness for the rest of the day. The Christian life is like every other life, but with a hope for the future, with a steadfast and an anchoring hope that keeps us tethered to the ground. By way of example, I want to introduce you to a man named William Tyndale. Do you know who that is? He is the man who wrote the first English translation of the Bible uh, in the 1500s. And for his efforts and for what he did, he was burned to death. It took him almost 10 years to produce that English Bible translation. And over the course of this period of time, he was from house to house, 
in an underground system, kind of being sheltered from the larger church, which sought to kill him and end the efforts that he was doing. The church did not want an English translation of the Bible in circulation. In fact, most of the people who were working as priests within the church didn't even understand the Latin translation of the Bible that they had. They knew the Latin, but they didn't know what it meant in English. And the, the church, the, the Roman Catholic Church, believed it to be a dangerous thing for someone to have access to an English translation of the Bible. And William Tyndale, under the conviction that the people needed to hear and read what the Word of God had to say, set about to translate the Bible from the original Greek and Hebrew into English. And it took him a long period of time. And at the outset of this mission, he faced immediate persecution and immediate hostility. And that did not stop, and it never stopped, until he was released from this life and into the gates of heaven by being burned at the stake. And in those last one and a half years where he was imprisoned before his execution, the offer was, you can stop translating the Bible, or you can take your translations out of circulation, and then we'll let you walk free, or you can stay here and you can wait to see what the church would have you do. And rather than seeing this as a terrible opportunity, rather than seeing this conflict as a bad thing, he saw it not as a reason to despair, but as another ministry opportunity. In fact, in a very Pauline way, he converted the jailer and most of the jailer's immediate family to faith in Christ. And for that, his trial was expediently uh, hustled along and he was uh, executed at an earlier date. And William Tyndale is an example, in this case, of a mature believer. Someone who, like the psalmist here, doesn't see all of life's turmoils and life's struggles as an opportunity to despair, but rather as an opportunity to be purified by fire through God's sovereign will for greater maturity, deeper relationship, and a deeper understanding of what it means to be a Christ follower. And you can imagine the many reasons that William Tyndale would have had in that prison cell to despair. And you can probably think of a dozen reasons right now why you would have reason to despair in God, whether he is sovereign, whether he is good, whether he is just, whether he actually has a plan for your life. There are a ton of reasons why you can despair. And as we go through this psalm, I want you to know that we're going to see uh, why you shouldn't despair, why God is good, why he is just, and why you can trust in him. So I want to map a path through this psalm, and I have really three main points, and they're each kind of like the verse and chorus associated together. And so the first movement that we're going to see is from thirst to refreshment, and this is uh, verses 1 through 5 of Psalm 42. From thirst to refreshment. And then the second movement of thought in this psalm, you're going to see in verses 6 all the way through to the end of verse 11 of 42, and it's from persecution to protection as the believer enters from persecution into the protection of their master. And then finally, Psalm 43 really is one unit of thought. It's that final verse and chorus. And you're going to see the movement from present to future, really from present suffering uh, into future glory. And so as we see these different movements through the psalm, uh, I would like you to look with me at verse 1 of Psalm 42. And in this first section, we're going to see the movement from a despair, from a thirst, into a restoration that the psalmist is seeking. He says in verse 1, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? 
in the very first outset of the psalm, he immediately sets into poetic imagery a picture that he wants us to hang on to as he moves through this first text. What he is talking about here is uh, an image of thirst, of actually dire thirst. Deer are an animal that gets hunted, which means they spend the vast majority of their time on this earth, especially in the Middle Eastern region where David is located, going from source of water to source of water to source of water. And they're usually arriving at the very last moment and they're not staying there for too long because hunters and predators know that the deer needs water. And so the deer searches for water and it desperately needs water and with great refreshment and joy, it finds water and then it needs to leave to go to the next place. A deer is, he could have chosen any animal to make this metaphor with, but he chooses a deer. And as one commentator points out, he doesn't use a camel for this analogy. A camel is an animal that can drink a lot of water at one time and then be sustained for a vast period of time without needing access to more water. A deer is not like that. It needs water regularly. It can't go long periods of time in drought. It's not a camel. It needs flowing streams of water on a regular basis and so is the believer, so is David, and so are you. You need access to a regular source of refreshment with God daily. And the setting that he picks here uh, is probably implied in the background, which is that this deer is a desert animal. And you and I, as Christians in this world, we exist in a spiritual desert outside of a world that is in right relationship with God. And we have to go from stream of water to stream of water, encounter with God, encounter with God. And we have to exist in this desert, seeking constantly to have access to that stream of living water. Living water and flowing streams, those are pictures of refreshment. And you probably know this because if you've listened to any Christian worship music, you know that water is a common metaphor for the refreshment that you find in Christ Jesus. And the flowing streams here paint that same picture. Flowing streams, fresh water that brings new life, that replenishes this thirsty animal. And so is the word of God and encounters with God for the believer. It refreshes and renews the soul. This whole first verse and second verse are full of this rich imagery of someone who has a desire for God that can only be satisfied in God. And you'll notice he says here that it is my soul which thirsts for God. It says, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts. And the soul here doesn't need to be taken in a spiritual sense. You see, as Westerners, we think about the body and the soul, and we think about them as two distinct entities. But that thought is really a Roman thought. That was actually a Gnostic heresy in the early church, that the soul and the body are somehow distinct beings that can be almost separated out and understood differently. For a Jewish author, the soul is the core, the essence of who you really are. Not the spirit divorced from the body. The soul is the heart of who you are. In fact, the soul most accurately word-for-word translated in English means the throat of the person. It is really who they are, how they get sustenance, how they speak ideas into this world. It is the very core of who he is. And he says the core of who he is needs God. The core of who he is needs to be refreshed in the Lord. And he searches as a deer that is thirsty searches with a desperation and an intent to go find what he's looking for. A few notes real quick that I think are interesting. You might notice in the, in the title of this psalm, it says, uh, a masculine of the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah are a musical group that are actually descendants of Korah, 
from Numbers chapter 16. And if you know anything about that story, Korah is the Levite who rebels against Aaron and Moses. And Korah and all of his 250 followers are swallowed whole in the earth. The earth opens up, swallows them whole, and then closes back around them. And here we have a beautiful picture of the restoration of that lineage. The sons of Korah here are actually the chief musical writers for David, and they have psalms that stand the test of time of faithfulness for the believer. And so God here has taken a group or a lineage, Korah, and he's restored them from outright rebellion against him into full restoration with him. And so these psalms, the psalms of Korah, all have this kind of rich poetic imagery that gets pointed out here. So that's why I point that out for you. And I think that there are many things that we can think about that uh, would cause us to search for or long after God. There's many things that cause us to be desperate for God. Sometimes it's because you are on fire for God. And I think we've all been there, either at initial conversion or maybe you have a season in life in which you become more interested about God and the truths of God's word. That could cause you to search for God more earnestly, to know more about him, to long to be in right relationship with God. So you could be on fire for God. That's one thing that could cause you to search him out in this way. Sometimes uh, we search out God because we're hungry and we're thirsty and we need God. Sometimes it's because we know we're desperate for God that we need to search for him. And sometimes it's because we have no appetite and no thirst for God that we must search out for God. And this is really the opinion and the understanding of a mature Christian believer is that when you have no appetite, no thirst for God, and you have no real sense of God's presence, it is at that moment that you need to search for God. You can compare it to someone who's sick and they're not hungry, but when you were sick as a kid, what did your mom make you do all the time? Is eat. Because eating and taking in nutrition, taking in nourishment, even despite your lack of an appetite, is what you need to do in order to be sustained. It's what you need to do in order to survive and do so in a healthy way. And so sometimes a Christian needs to, nur- to be in relationship with God and to feed on God's word, not because they desire to, not because they're on fire for, but because they actually have no appetite. And it is at that moment that we also need God and to be close to him. And you'll notice here, the last observation from these two verses is that he says, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. He's not looking for anything else to satisfy his hunger, satisfy his thirst besides God. He only wants God. And, he not- and notice he says, the living God. God is not a dead relic of a past generation or a past dead religion of a group of people that's 2,000 years outdated. God is living and active and alive today in and through believers, in and through his church, and even himself intervening still in this world. And the psalmist wants to be in right relationship with that God, the one who created and sustains and interacts with his world and his creation. The desire is to be in right relationship back with God. The desire is to worship God once again in the temple, and the desire is to experience refreshment that you can get from God. Notice that there's nothing outside of God that can fulfill us in this way. It's not God and what he can give you. It's not God and satisfaction in your career. It's not God and making your relationships right. It's God alone and everything else can be going wrong. God alone 
can nourish and satisfy your soul in this way. And this is a good truth for us because a lot of times, all those other things that we have going wrong in our lives that drive us to God, sometimes those things never get resolved. Sometimes that person never actually comes to faith in Christ. Sometimes that sickness and that disease and that health problem never goes away. Sometimes that sin that you struggle with for the duration of your life never gets any better or easier. But God is still God. And God is still faithful. And he is still the source of living water which can nourish your soul. There are so many things that are offering to refresh and replenish our souls. And most of them are like drinking salt water. You drink it, and as soon as you finish drinking it, your body needs more water. It needs more of that thing. It needs more because it's not actually getting the nourishment that it needs. It's a deception. And there are so many things that offer just that. But when they refresh you, you just need more of them, and it never actually satisfies. But God, as Jesus says to the woman at the well, he says, drink from a source of living water, and you will never be thirsty again. And so it is for the believer. We have one source of refreshment we can go to and never need another source of refreshment ever again. But only God can refresh you in this way. And here the psalmist continues his train of thought by really locking into how downcast his soul is. He says in verse 3, My tears have been my food day and night. And while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? I want to pause there because we see that the state of the psalmist is at a really terrible place. The psalmist is in a bad spot. He has no nourishment, no access to God, no scripture, no comfort, no community. He's in a bad spot. And he says actually the only source of nourishment he has is not the living water he's looking for. It's his tears, which are his food day and night. And then he continues this thought by saying, They say to me all the day long. And the question here is, who is the they that David is referring to? If it's David. Now there's debate about whether David wrote this psalm. I think that much of the evidence points to that fact. And if you were to try to pin this in history, there's really two major contending time periods for who wrote it or when David wrote it. The first is David when he's being persecuted by Saul. And you can think of two distinct instances where David is on the run from Saul. But there's a third contending time period which I think is probably the most accurate, which is David when he is fleeing from his own son, Absalom. And it is during Absalom's rebellion that David was under the most heavy pressing accusation, not about God's, about God's faithfulness to his kingship. You see, when David was running from Saul, the question wasn't, will he be king? Because there was no reason why he would not be king. God had promised it to him. But in Absalom's rebellion, you'll recall that right before that happens, David had committed the sin with Bathsheba. And so David is under a harsh prosecuting accusation that there is no God. Where is your God? Is he even your God? He is facing sharp accusations. And these are accusations that we face today. The accuser, the evil one, seeks to strike you at the very heart of your insecurity and try to get you away from God. And it's not outright lies. We think that Satan's going to strike us with outright lies about who we are and about who God is, and they'll be easy to spot. But he is a master deceiver. And so he tells partial truths, or almost truths, or mostly truths about us. But he doesn't actually complete the picture for the believer. 
and he strikes us at our most vulnerable points. He strikes you probably at the sin you're most insecure about. And he uses that as a way to drive a wedge between you and God. And surely God can't love you if you struggle with that. Or surely God is done with you after that time you screwed up. And the, the accusers are asking multiple questions of David. They're saying, has God left you? Is God able to save you? Are you even worthy of being saved by God? You've screwed up with Bathsheba, David. You're not worthy of the kingdom anymore. You didn't handle that situation right the last time, and so we think Absalom's a better king than you. Will God actually intervene and save you in this moment as he's done in the past? Or really harder questions, which is, is God just? Will he actually step in and do what he promised he would do? Is God faithful? Is God good? Is he your God? Has God abandoned you to your sin and to your situation and to your circumstance? Is God strong enough to save you in your turmoil? Or really, does God care at all about what you're going through? And you'll realize in all of these accusations that these are not so much accusations about us and about who we are or David and who he is, but they're accusations against God and who he is. And the accuser is striking not at your character, but at God's character. And he's convincing you that he's striking at your character, but he knows if you believe the lie, you believe about a lie about who God is. And the partial truth is not that you do struggle with that sin, because it's probably true. And it's not that you are worthy because you're not. The point is not who you are or what sin you struggle with. The point is who God is and what he did through his son, Christ Jesus. The point is not, are you worthy? The point is not, are you in right relationship with God? Is not, did you walk in a manner worthy of God saving you? The point is, is God a good God who saves a rebellious, sinful people? That's the question. And that's what the accusers are striking at here. They're saying, where is your God? And you'll remember that Elijah the prophet asked the same question to the prophets of Baal on the mountain where he faces off against them. And he asked them that same question. Maybe your God is gone out hunting. And maybe he's not listening right now. Maybe he's out of the office. And these are fair accusations of a pagan God because it's not a real God, but it's not a fair accusation of the living and true God. And so to believe the lie is not to believe a lie about yourself, it's to believe a lie about God. And so we need to stand firm against these lies. But the accusations are fair. And he says, these things, verse 4, are what I remember. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How will I go through the throng and lead them into the procession of the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. He says here that he longs to be in a place where he can once again worship God and remind himself of something he knows to be true, which is who God is. He longs to be in that place. But he remembers in those moments the accusations of sin, the accusations of failure, the accusations of inadequacy. And he says that he, he pours out his soul before God, but it's not actually enough for him to meet God in prayer to pour out his soul. He says he longs for the moment where he can once again worship God. It's not enough for us to just pray to God. It's not enough for us to read in right relation, be in right relationship with God and read about him in his word. Eventually that comes out of our soul in worship. And that might look different for everyone, but it eventually does bubble out in worship. You can't contain it. If your soul is refreshed in the Lord, 
you have to have the same response that David has here, which is he actually, he doesn't want to just participate in the procession. He wants to be front and center leading everyone else through the procession of worship because that's how confident he is in who God is. You remember in Psalm 51, he says, forgive me, God, so I can be the person who goes forth and proclaims your goodness to everybody else. And that is how we ought to be when God restores us as well. That is what we ought to be searching for, to make his name great in all things. He longs to satisfy his thirst in God alone. And he is desperate for refreshment. He's desperate for restoration. He's desperate to be replenished in who God is. And the prayer is not enough. He knows that worship is what's going to restore his soul with God. Worship restores our souls as well. And this is why it's so important the kind of music you listen to, the kind of worship you sing, the kind of things you put into your mind. Because unlike reading scripture, we don't have really an intellectual barrier up when we're singing worship music for the most part. And so we need to carefully guard the kind of things we repeat to ourselves over and over and over again, especially if we're talking about who God is and what he's done. Worship is theology. Worship music is theological. And so when you sing worship music, you need to sing worship that livens your soul to who God is and paints a picture of a big God who's worthy of worship and says true things about who God is and what he's done and that affirms the character of God. Because if you don't sing that kind of worship, how can you be worshiping the God of the Bible? Your worship should agree with scripture. And the nice thing about worship is it's easier to memorize and you can repeat it to yourself regularly. And so this is why you should be careful about what you sing and also an encouragement of why you should sing because worship enlivens your soul to God. And here then we get to the worship, the chorus or the refrain of this psalm, which is, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. David is honest with himself when he goes before God. He's not trying to paint a false picture about who he is and where he's at. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul? He goes to God honestly and comes to him and confronts his own sin in that way. He says, why are you cast down? Why are you in turmoil within me? It's not a problem that he's in turmoil. But he's honest about his turmoil. He's honest about his doubts. He's honest about his concerns. He's honest about his sins. David is honest with him, himself, and you also need to be honest with yourself about your sins, about your insecurities, about your doubts. Is God good? Are you worthy? You need to take those before God. And God will answer every time. And you'll notice here he's speaking to himself. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul? He's preaching to himself. He's reminding himself of truth. He's asking himself questions. But the answer to the struggle is really found there, hope in God. It answers the question, why are you cast down? Why are you in turmoil? Hope in God. The thing that creates steadfast endurance for the believer is a hope in God. A hope in God's character, a hope in God's providence, a hope in God's goodness, a hope in God's accomplishments that he's done in ages past. All believers have to engage in this internal dialogue, not only to raise the concern, but also to raise the answer, to remind ourselves of truth. And notice he says in verse 6, and my God. 
He says, why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you in turmoil? Hope in God, my God. And that answers the question that was raised where they say in verse 3, where is your God? And he says, I'm hoping in him and he is my God. This is David's savior. This is David's king. This is David's God. But notice he, he's not shy about anything, but he speaks truth over his emotions. He speaks truth over his circumstances. He preaches about the goodness of God to himself. He is reminded of who God is. Faith in this first verse is tried, but you'll notice that faith also triumphs. Faith is tried in the first four verses and it triumphs there at the end of verse five. Hope in God. And this reminds me of Romans chapter seven, where Paul has this same internal dialogue, wrestling with the flesh, wrestling with sin, wrestling and not wanting to sin, but keeping on sinning and the very thing he struggles with, he doesn't want to do. And then he says in chapter eight, verse one, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He has that same internal dialogue. And you'll notice here that dialogue, that verse 5 refrain is repeated three times between Psalm 42 and 43. And that is not an accident. It's the same thing repeated, but it's not vain repetition. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane goes off and prays three different times the same words, according to Matthew 26. It's not wrong to repeat the same things because you need to often be reminded. If our Savior needed to be reminded, you need to be reminded as well. You need to repeat these things to yourself. So we see the movement there from thirst to refreshment. And then the second really main thrust is from persecution to protection. And this one moves a little quicker because it follows that same pattern, the lament and the hope, the lament and the hope. And he says, starting at the end there of verse 6, he says, My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you. From the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. This language is poetically uh, reshaping or drawing from the language that was used in verse 1 and 2 of the chapter. You see, he's looking for flowing streams to refresh him, and he says really all he's experiencing is water beating down over him, wave after wave after wave, and he was already downcast before he got here. And he says rather than experiencing refreshment from the Lord, he's experiencing almost wrath poured out and judgment poured out from God. That's what he feels like. But you notice, he says, my soul is downcast, Therefore, I remember you. And it's important to notice you can't remember something that you don't know at first. You can't recall something that you have not first experienced. So this is not someone who's never experienced God. This is someone trying to remind themselves of who God is and what they have experienced. And this is a powerful contrast here. He says that although the waves pour over him and over him and over him, he still hopes in God. He's still reminding himself of truth. This reminds me of 2 Corinthians 4, verses 8 and 9, where Paul tells the Corinthian church that uh, we are afflicted, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not despairing. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. And we are struck down, but not destroyed. And he's talking about how the apostles are sustaining 
all of the suffering that they're going through and how the church ought to sustain its suffering. And that last line of 2 Corinthians 4, 8, and 9, it says we are struck down but not destroyed. And he's saying we are killed but not destroyed. Our lives are ended and taken from us on this earth, but we are not destroyed. We are kept. And here David is reminding himself similarly. He says, the waterfalls go over me and breakers and your waves have gone over me. And then verse 8, by day the Lord commands his steadfast love. He has that same reminder of truth. It's hard, but God is good. Verse 8, by day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is within me, a prayer to the God of my life. Notice verse 8 uses the language by day and at night. And that, you can look back at verse 3, and you can notice that same language. He says, my tears have been my food day and night. And now you've seen the movement from his tears being the thing to sustain him. And now he's saying, by day the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night his song is within me. He's got a different source of nutrition now. He's reminded himself of truth, and it's now carrying him through this almost second wave of persecution that he's experiencing. Verse 9, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go on mourning? Because of the oppression of my enemy? And here he's facing that same external accusation that he had earlier in the chapter. But you notice the movement there between verse 7 and verse 8. It's a movement from spiritual immaturity or a spiritual babe to a spiritually mature Christian. And I want to draw out those differences for you. And I want you to ask the question, which one describes you? See, a spiritual baby, they can't endure suffering. A, a human baby can't endure a very long time without food. It needs constant nourishment all the time. A mature human can skip a meal here and there and still be okay, be just fine. In fact, most of us can go quite a bit of time without eating and we would be just fine. A spiritual baby is always shaken and rattled by their circumstance. A spiritually mature person, you'll notice, is unshakable. The water crashes down over and over and over, and he is yet unshaken because he reminds himself of truth. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. A spiritually immature person must be fed regularly. A spiritually mature person must be fed regularly as well, but they don't die if they go without food. They just try to remind themselves and long for that food. They have a hunger that's produced inside of them, but they don't die without food. A, spiritual, a spiritually immature person needs it easy in order to be okay with God. A spiritually mature person knows they're okay with God despite their circumstance, despite what's going on around them, because it's not about circumstance. It's about Yahweh who's commanding his steadfast love. It's marked by endurance, constant, regular, trotting endurance through life. Anyone can burn with zeal for a day. Anyone can burn with zeal for a year. But what about burning with zeal for 40 years for who God is and what he's done? What about facing opposition for a lifetime? What about raising a child for a lifetime in the faith and the endurance that that takes? What about facing the steady erosion of morality that is sweeping through our culture. What about that? Can you endure that, not for a day, not for four years of college, but for a lifetime, and still stand firm, knowing and trusting that God is steadfast and faithful? 
And you'll notice that the spiritually mature person reminds themselves constantly of truth. That's how they stay alive. They feed on this stuff. And we endure, not because we're strong. We endure because God endures. Notice in verse 8, by day the Lord commands his steadfast love. His covenantal love is towards us. That's why we endure. It's not because we're any stronger than anyone else. It's because we're attached and connected with God and his steadfast faithfulness towards us. That is why mature believers survive. And he's gone now from persecuted to protected. He's gone from facing accusation to being safe in the arms of God. And you'll notice that movement in verse 9. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Notice he speaks a truth about God before he asks a question. I I speak to God, my rock. Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? You'll notice the answer is kind of obvious. He knows it's logically inconsistent to be in turmoil, to be downcast. But he still asks the question. He still takes it to God. God is a fortress for him, and so he takes it to his fortress. And before he questions God, he roots himself in truth. And you'll notice the taunt there is the same as the taunt is always. He says, as with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. And what's the taunt? While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Same accusation. And so the answer is fittingly also the same. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And he resists then a second wave of opposition, a second taunt, a second accusation. And he questions God here, and you notice it. He says, why have you forgotten me? That's what he says in verse 9. He says, why have you forgotten me? And you notice he questions God, but it's okay. He complains to God, but he doesn't complain about God. He complains to God, he takes his cares to God, but he doesn't complain about God or about his character. And that is true of Job. If you want to read that whole book, you'll notice that same exact pattern. You'll notice the same pattern throughout all the Psalms of Lament. They complain to God, they cast their cares before God, but they don't complain about him because he is sovereign and they know that. And here, you'll notice again, he finds no good reason to be downcast. Why are you downcast, O my soul? hope in God. There's no good reason to stay in a downcast spot. And so he finds no good reason. And so there's uh, an application here, which is that you ought to memorize scripture. You need to remind yourself of scripture. And the only way you can remind yourself of scripture outside of having a Bible in front of you is committing it to your memory. No one is going to give you handouts of scripture all over the place. They'll throw plenty of accusations your way, but they're not going to give you handouts of truth. And so you need to commit scripture to memory so you have at your beck and call a constant reminder of truth. Remember when Jesus faces temptation from Satan himself, he quotes scripture. And that is the mark of maturity, that you memorize scripture in preparation for the dry season. You take some things with you so you can survive in the desert. You prepare. And not only does he memorize scripture, does he know who God is, it's so deep inside of him, but also he reviews it constantly. And this is not, again, vain repetition. It's more like if you have a favorite meal that you like eating, and so you eat it a lot. It doesn't get boring after a while, 
The meal is nutritious, it has all the right flavors that you like, and so you go back to it constantly over and over and over again. And scripture is just the same. You need to find that nutritious meal of scripture that speaks to the very soul of what you struggle with. And you need to memorize that and go there whenever you're hungry. He goes straight for what he knows he needs, which is nutrition. Notice now twice in the psalm, he has sustained the accusation of the enemies by going back to scripture in spite of emotions, in spite of circumstance, and in spite of hostility. He has gone back to the truth of who God is. And you need to pursue God that way if you want to survive in turmoil and in opposition. And then finally, this third verse and final repetition of the chorus, we see his hope going from present to future. He moves from a present hostility towards a future glory with God. Verse four, chapter 43, verse 1 starts like this. He says, Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. And you notice now the flavor of confidence that he has in God. He's no longer concerned about where God is. He's now calling out for God to deliver him because he knows who God is. And verse 2 continues, For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Notice how much faster he got there than the last verse. He, it only takes him one verse to get there. He says, For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? And again, there's, there's no good reason why he goes about mourning. He knows that, but he brings it to God. And notice here, it says, the God in whom I take refuge. And I just want to point out, he has now used several different names to describe God. In verse 2, he says it's the living God. In verse 5, it says, God my Savior. In verse 6, it's my God. In verse 8, it's Yahweh. In verse 9, it's God my rock. In this verse, it's God in whom I take refuge. And you'll see in verse 4 of 43, it's God my exceeding joy. And the movement of the names goes from someone who he wants God to be, the living God, into a God who he's actually experienced refreshment in. Verse 4, God my exceeding joy of chapter 43. He says, verse 3, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Not emotions to lead him, not trends, not people, not culture to lead him. Let the light and the truth of God lead him. Because he knows where they're going to take him. He says, let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Verse 4, then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. You see, this one terminates in worship as well. He goes from being downcast, and now he's confident, and now he takes it straight back to worship. I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. And you'll notice this last movement in verse 5 of chapter 43, is the same as verse 5 in chapter 42. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. He moves from doubt over the course of this psalm into a confident faith. And not a questionable faith, not a faith that is shakable, but you notice the, the circumstances don't change. The suffering doesn't change, the questions don't change, the accusations don't change, but his confidence in God moves over the course of time. It moves over the course of reminder, and it is firmly rooted and established in God, his rock, his fortress, and God, his exceeding joy. 
Throughout this whole psalm, he's been vulnerable. Internally, about his own internal disposition towards God. Is he safe with God? Is this his God? He's been vulnerable externally from the ridicule of accusers and people who seek to take his throne and take away God and his favor. He's been vulnerable the whole time. And I think you can ask the same question. Is in what ways are you vulnerable towards accusation, towards ridicule? Is it from people who are accusing you? Is it from your own internal shame and conscience and disposition that you are in turmoil? How are you vulnerable? Is it a sin that you're struggling with unrepentantly? Is it a circumstance that is kind of robbing the life from you and stripping away your joy in God? Is it because you are not regularly feeding on God's word? You're like a deer that is slowly dying of thirst, but not really seeking streams of living water. That's a vulnerable position to be because you can't run as far away from danger if you're dying of thirst. Are you vulnerable because you're a Christian, but you're alone outside of the protection of the church, outside of the protection of community? How are you vulnerable? What truth do you need to be reminded of? The psalmist here knows what he needs to be reminded of. He knows he needs to remind himself to hope in God. He says, hope in God, for I shall again praise him. That brings a picture to my mind of Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, where he says, and he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne says, behold, I am making all things new. That is what God promises us in the future. That is the hope that we have in God. But lastly, to close, I want to turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, and I want to go to verse 31 of that chapter. Because I think this is really a reminder of truth that we could all benefit from. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 31, he talks about the everlasting love of God. And he's talking about the contrast between the believer's future hope and reality and their present struggles and circumstances. And he says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? There's no one, not the accuser, not you, not your friend. No one can bring a charge against you. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. He's the judge. Verse 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who is indeed interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation? Distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. Verse 36, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. He's saying those things hold no candle to us. We already experienced them. We're just fine. Verse 37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Verse 38, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. His confidence, Paul's confidence, is not in 
his own merits and earnings. He writes later in a letter that he considers those things to be rubbish for the sake of Christ. It's not in his status. It's not in his accomplishments as a missionary planting all of the early churches. It's not in his accomplishments in converting from death to life, and he's boasting now in his faith. He boasts solely in Christ Jesus, the one who died. No one can condemn because Christ Jesus already died and paid it. He already purchased the redemption. No one can bring a charge against God's elect because God has already justified. And he roots himself in this love of Christ. He says, nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. And as a believer, you need to remind yourself of this. Because the reality is we still struggle. We still live in a world broken by sin. We are still in our souls at a deep level, polluted and affected by sin. And so we need to be reminded of this truth constantly. So you need to remind yourself of this love. But if you're not a believer, I need to ask you the question, do you know this love? Have you tasted this love? A love that you can never be separated from, a love that will never fail you. You see, friends and family, they'll fail you. Your own religiosity, it will fail you. But the love of Jesus Christ will never fail you. It's been tested, it's been tried. But not even death or angels or rulers or principalities can separate us from the love of Christ. If you don't know this love, you have to know it. You have to know it. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word for us today. We thank you from ages past that knowing that we would struggle with our confidence in you, with our assurance, we would struggle with our own lives and our walks, that you, through the pen of your servant David, wrote to us this encouragement. And we thank you that even later in that time, that through your servant Paul, you wrote to us another moment of encouragement, that we could cling to these truths in Scripture, to commit them to memory, to uh, taste them, to mull them over, to remember them, to uh, linger upon the truths that they contain. Not as theological ideas, not as things to make us any smarter than the next person, but Lord, as things that we need for sustenance. I thank you that you have given us a rich plate of food to eat from for spiritual longevity, for a life that is pleasing to you, that you've given us the spirit to encourage us, to allow us to endure, that your son intercedes for us as we still struggle with sin and we struggle with doubt and guilt and shame. And moreover, that through your word, you minister to us by reminding us of truth. And Lord, I thank you for all of the blessings contained in your word and contained in these scriptures that we would not too quickly move beyond these things, but we would remind ourselves of what you have written in ages past. And Lord, I thank you for your glory and for your name that you would be lifted high through our endurance. In your name, amen.